Would you consider yourself a realistic optimist? My interview with Paul Boynton was all about starting with an attitude of yes. And we talked about how that doesn't mean always saying yes to everything and everyone, but it does mean beginning with a positive attitude. He likes to call that realistic optimism. And we're going to explore the difference between that and simply having a happy-go-lucky take on every situation. After all, everything can't always be sunshine and rainbows. This episode is our conversation about our previous episode, starting with yes, and later we'll hear my essay, The Stretch It Takes. But I want to start first by welcoming all the listeners, new and seasoned, to the Grand Life podcast. It means a lot to us that you are here, and I have often talked about the big idea of the Grand Life as encompassing all the parts of grandparenting, positive and otherwise. So while many of our episodes concentrate on being in the room when your grandchild is born or spending one-on-one vacations together, we'll also talk about the loss of a grandchild, getting divorced, or handling solo grandparenting. I'd call that a sort of realistic optimism. So while you're out walking your dog or doing the dishes or creating an amazing quilt, because I know some of you are quilters, I hope you are enjoying the chance to explore all the topics we cover. Please let me know if there's something you'd like to hear about. You can write to me at grandlifeconnection at gmail.com, or you can leave a voicemail at 317-572-7876. Okay, on to our chat about starting with yes. Welcome, Mike. Hi, Emily. (laughs) It's good to have you back. Thank you. Here we go. Uh, Well, let's first talk about bringing more yes people into our life. Paul talked about that uh, when I asked him the question about what do you do when you have negative people in your life. And we talked about whether you just get rid of these people or not be with these people and realize that we can't do that because many of them are people we're related to, people we love, and you can't just get rid of them. So he suggested let's bring more yes people into our lives. So, I mean, first of all, let's let's be honest here together. Are you a yes or a no person? Well, I'm a no person. <laughs> I I know that I am a no person. Yeah. And and as you'll find out in I mean this, you're free to, you're I'm, you're no, welcome I'm, to disagree I, I but totally I think we're on you. the same page about this. <laughs> I will say yes to that. <laughs> it's true. And, and funny because in the stretch it takes essay I'll talk about how I grew up in a kind of a no home but I I think my what I really I want to be a yes person and I think deep down I am a yes person but it's been it's been a journey. Let's just say it that way. It's been a journey. Do you think that you've always been deep down a, a yes person? Yes, I do. Okay. I do deep down think I have been. I'll tell you how I know I have not been. Cause okay. Because anytime any question, possibility, opportunity uh, comes up, anything that's presented to me for maybe evaluation and execution, the first thing I think about are the reasons it's it can't happen. Yeah. Now, I'm thinking about those so that I can get them out of the way so we can do it. But that the fact remains that the first thing I think about is, why won't this happen? Yes, I am, I am aware of that. <laughs> I'm just establishing the fact that this is the flag that goes off in my mind 
that helps me know whether I'm a yes or no person. Yeah. It's the proof. And it's interesting to me because I think it's fairly common for couples to for one of them to be a yes person and one of them to be a no person. And I know when I was a child, my parents were often wanting to talk about starting a business or they were going to buy this business or they were going to do this. I was always thinking, yes, 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 it would be so fun. And I would get so excited. And I even wrote an essay when I was like third or fourth grade about how my sisters were going to create this snow village in the back of our house. And I was so excited about it. And I knew it could happen. And then, of course, it didn't happen. There was no way that we could build a snow village in the backyard, even even though we lived in Buffalo at the time and we had huge amounts of snow. Lots of raw materials. Yeah, I was definitely thinking that that could happen. And, uh, you know, I was a dreamer. So I think I'm a yes person. But um, but Paul did talk about no people and didn't write them off. He He mentioned that they sometimes base their no on something that we might not see. Like if you find somebody responding to you with no, um, you need to listen because you might help each other come to a stronger or better yes. That's what he said. And so even what like what you're saying about being a no person, you're trying to get the no things out of the way so that it, it actually could happen, right? Right. But what that doesn't take into account is how important it is emotionally to have a yes orientation, even right. though you've got no people who may help you get there. And you might not be able to get there unless they are doing the thing that they do to help you get there. Mm-hmm. Still, the emotional impact of no must not be undervalued. Actually, I think it's important to realize that we're not always talking about yes in terms of saying yes to ideas and thoughts and all that, but also there there may be times, and he mentions this, about boundaries where it is important to learn how to say no. So there is a balance. We can't be absolutist about it. There's a balance of like times to say no that has nothing to do with when somebody presents you with an idea. It's more of, um, or maybe it is. I mean, when they present you with something and you're like, no, that I can't do that because you know you can't take that on. And you need to be able to say no. And that's an important part of finding out who you are and what you're up to and what you can handle. So what are you saying? So sometimes no is very important to say. And we have to honor people who say no in terms of, our, you know, their boundaries too. So I'm just trying to say that there's both and. Both and. Yeah. Which, you know, as we have grown older, we have realized the both and idea is really huge in in everybody's life. You can't, there's no, it's not black and white. It's It's not yes or no. It's both and and. <laughs> So that balance is important. The second thing I wanted to talk about was how he talked about action and how, you know, in his experience, and he's not ruling it out, but he says that positive thoughts don't make things happen. And, you know, you can put up Successories posters in your bedroom or in your office as if that's going to make everything be okay. You can you can do a vision board and think that that means you're going to live in a Victorian mansion someday. But positive thoughts don't 
actually make things happen. They might give you a feeling like this could happen, and it might also then encourage you to do something. And that's what Paul is talking about. Or it might give you the resilience to keep doing things in the face of challenges and, and obstacles. Right, until you get to the point. So it's not like vision boards or accessories or anything are bad, but it's just that you actually have to take steps. You actually have to act on the positive thoughts that you're having. So, um, for example, and I think this comes up a lot as we get older, um, it is really easy to, when you're getting older, to get overwhelmed by the things that have to happen in your life. Um, I know we're dealing with this with, you know, my parents are in their 90s. There's a lot that has to happen in your 90s to clear out what you have and all the things that you have amassed. We're running into that now. We're starting to realize that, you know, we have a lot of stuff we have to manage and we have to figure out what to do with. And I don't remember what study it was that I read, but it said something like, um, if you haven't moved or kind of simplified your life or gotten things in writing by the time you're 70, it's a little late. (laughs) It's like too late. So whoever I'm talking to now, if you're 70 and you haven't figured out what you're going to be doing in the next 20 years, you kind of have to start really, you know, thinking about that and doing something. Yeah, But don't feel bad about it because here's the thing. I used to believe that as as we got older, our, our capacity for doing hard things got less. And I'm not, of course, I'm, I'm older than I used to be. Yeah, but you're not 70 yet. I'm not. And I, and I recognize that capacities do diminish, but here's the thing. I I no longer believe that that's the main reason it gets hard. It gets hard because there is so doggone much of it. So many things, so many details and so many changes are happening uh, at the concentrated part of life. You know, when this much change happened in our adolescence, we had parents to kind of help govern us and guide us and assist us. Right. Now, I feel like the rate of change is picking up again as we are getting older. A lot of things are going to have to happen. You talked about a few of them. Mm-hmm. Um, possessions and residence, but mm-hmm. there's also uh, physical condition and health care and changes in the way income happens as you go from uh, employed to retired. Right. All those things conspire to overwhelm. Right. And, you know, one of the examples for us, for we, we decided we needed to clean out our basement. We have a large basement and we had a lot of stuff in it. We did. And we kept looking at it thinking, how in the heck is this going to happen? And we're not hoarders, but it's <laughs> it's been decades and we've been busy. And we've stayed in the same house yeah, for yeah, many, many true. years. That made it-, it was organized, but it was full. And so uh, we decided that we were going to create... Um, a play area for the grandkids in the basement. We've got 10 grandchildren. So when they come over to the house, if they're all together at Thanksgiving or Christmas, it's loud and we need them to have a place to play. And so we just, and we, we didn't want to, we, we just needed an open space. We, we weren't looking to make it fancy or anything, but. Step, um, step number one. Step number one. Was to clear it out. And that was, it felt overwhelming. It really did. And we still have a corner of the basement that we preserved for putting stuff in there. And <laughs> I keep thinking, I don't want to go in there. Like every time I go in there to get a Christmas decoration or a wreath or something, I'm thinking, no, we still have to clean that out. But it's a lot smaller than it was before. So we're, we're taking action. We're doing what Paul said to do. Don't get too overwhelmed. Just take little steps. It's happening in stages. Right. 
the next stage is going to be hard. Yeah. But, you know, most of them are already done. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, this is a, this is a key thing. Little by little. Try not to get overwhelmed. Just do things. Just start. Just actually move towards something. It sounds to me like what you just said might be, in fact, the key to changing that basic orientation from no to yes, these incremental actions. Yeah, I think so. So, you know, try really hard not to say no, just move forward. So the next thing we're going to talk about is Paul mentioned the word reframing. He talked about the idea of grandparenting and parenting and how ideally there should be a blending of yes and no. This is the both and and again. So parents often have to say no and grandparents often say yes, but maybe we could both learn to put a positive spin on negative behaviors. One of the things he talked about was how, because I think I asked him, how do you say no to a grandchild? And I think reframing is one of the keys. Now, There is a book, and I have mentioned it before on the podcast, called The Danish Way of Parenting. And I find it one of the best books there is out there about reframing. And I'm going to quote here, reframing is about using language to create a perception shift. So do you remember when we were first married, one of our favorite sayings was perception is more important than reality? Right. I say that all the time. I do. And when the kids got (laughs) to a certain age, I made up a little song about it. That's right. You did. You know, because it's it's got a rhythm. Perception's more important than reality. I don't remember any more of it than the fact that it's catchy. (laughs) Right. And it's true. Because really, how you view things is going to make a huge difference. That's the reality that you've created in your mind. It's what you tend to act on. Exactly, is your own perception. So um, I'm just going to talk about Danish way of parenting because they they talk about using the correct language and how that changes the focus. So you, quote, acknowledge reality, but you can still eliminate the unnecessary negative words and focus on the good feelings rather than the bad through humor or focusing on another time of feeling good. Now, maybe I need to give you an example of that. I think they mention in the book, there's a situation where a child is really unhappy about how the baseball game went. And, you know, you could, and you've probably seen parents who are really hard on their kids when they come off of a baseball field and they haven't done a good job, right? Well, they mentioned that there's, you know, a way to handle that where you're reframing the situation and you're saying, okay, well, do you feel like you did a bad job today on the field? And they'll say, yeah, I was so bad. I was so bad. And then you say, you'll say something like, well, do you remember when you had a game two weeks ago and you did a really good job and how did that feel? And they say, yeah, that was really great and everything. And they say, well, think about that and remember that. And, you know, next time maybe you can do that again. You know, you, you, so you really are reframing the bad and saying there is something positive. You've learned something and you can probably figure out how to do it better next time. You're not saying, yeah, you had a great game because they know they didn't have a great game. So this is, this is part of this realistic optimism. You know, we grew up in a time when I would have called it realistic pessimism because, you know, you'd bring a piece of artwork home and they'd say, wow, that's not very good. You know, no wonder you got a C on that or whatever it is. I think as a culture, there wasn't a self-esteem movement. There was more like, let's tell them the truth about what they did. And then you get the self-esteem movement. And I'm not sure when that became huge. 
But I know by the time in the 80s when we were having children, it was getting big. And I was never a big fan of it because I thought it was not realistic. So I think I could have erred on the side of being a realistic pessimist, but I think I tried hard to be more of a realistic optimist. But now I feel like we have to be careful. And in the Danish way of parenting, they talk about this. You have to be careful not to overdo the optimism. You want to be realistic. So you might say, I love the colors you used. And tell me a little bit about what your artwork is saying. You know, that kind of thing. You're not saying it's bad. But you're also not saying it's fantastic and they're going to be the next Van Gogh. You know, you just, it's kind of like that both and that balance. So anyway, that's a, that, that's a little plug for Danish Way of Parenting and also for Begin With Yes, because that is Paul's idea too. Lastly, um, he talks about being amazing. What does that look like for you? I mean, I think that's the thing he was challenging us about. What does be amazing look like to you? What do you think? Well, so I, for me, I think being amazing looks a lot like being surprised. And and by that, I mean, if you are surprising the people around you and if you are surprising yourself in a way that is both positive and unexpected, you do that a few times in a row. And then amazement, I think, is sort of the, the natural follow on from that. Hmm. That's my thought. Yeah. Amazement. For yourself or in the amazement of other the other it, people? I think being, it works both ways. I think, like... I, I think it's possible to amaze oneself. That is, if you find that you are surprised by something that goes unexpectedly well, mm-hmm. and it happens a few times, what, what do we sometimes say about that? This is amazing. Life is yeah. amazing. This trip is amazing. Yeah. If you are surprised over and over again by things that go better than you expect, that's what I think amazing is. Okay. Well, I think of being amazing as our children or our grandchildren saying, you're amazing, like thinking about us. But one of the things that I think is important about that that Paul mentions is it's not like he, he suggested that we need to be authentic in our amazingness. That is be ourselves. So that isn't doesn't mean we're perfect. That was the thing I took away from it, that amazing doesn't mean perfect. Yeah. And <laughs> so that was a relief to me because, you know, he mentioned being amazing to one grandchild isn't going to look the same as it is to another grandchild. And it depends on their age and their personality. And so I think really what you need to do is you need to know your grandchildren in order to be your authentic self to them, but the part of, but but kind of reaching into the part of them who, that would that would amaze them, amaze them, make a difference to them. So I think that's the goal: not perfect, but amazing. And then to tie those two together by fully living into who you are and not being afraid to expose yourself mm-hmm. in your imperfections to your grandchildren. So that you find together the things that resonate with each other. Right. I think, I think that's a lovely adventure. Yeah. Yep. And, it, and we, we can see it in some of our grandchildren even now, the things that really speak to them about each of our personalities that um, kind of resonate with them and then the things that don't. And then you just kind of adjust and you figure out a way to be amazing to them and be yourself at the same time. It was so fun to talk to Paul. I feel like I was challenged and learned a lot about who I am and how to handle people who don't have the same outlook as I do and also how to reframe a situation so that I don't find myself in that negative group of people. 
I think we all want to be positive people, and especially to have our grandchildren think of us that way. So as we head into the stretch it takes, let's think of ways we can be positive people, even if, for some of us, it's a pretty daunting task. Old habits die hard. I can confirm this. In today's The Stretch It Takes, I explore the idea that what is modeled for you as a child is often how you parent. And if you never stretch beyond that, it may also be the way you grandparent. So let's go to the mat and find a way to develop new patterns, new ways of navigating so that we can evolve into the grandparents we want to be, not the ones we seem to have been destined to be from birth. reading a book about how scientists are discovering that family trauma is inherited, passed down through generations who have shaped who we are. In essence, a lot of our issues may have been handed down to us by our parents and grandparents. Who we are and how we respond to things is in our DNA. It's a lot to consider. And while I'm not a fan of blame shifting, I do recognize that how I relate to others is often linked to how that was modeled to me by my family during my early development. If you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, you may know that I grew up in a home shaped by a conservative faith tradition. For much of my early life, Sundays were strictly a day of rest. If the neighbors were having a pool party, which I had been invited to and could hear outside of our unair conditioned house, I was told to stay in my room and read or rest. When I was in high school and invited to dances, even the junior-senior prom, I was not allowed to attend. My reading choices were subject to censorship, and my parents made sure that if any of the school curriculum was out of bounds, I was given another alternative. My childhood was somewhat shaped by the word no. This is not to say that I was not loved or cared for. I certainly was. But one way my parents expressed their love for me was by caring enough to forbid me from doing things that they perceived as harmful. After all, if you knew that your child would be hurt by something, wouldn't you say no? So that is how I have chosen to reframe my childhood. My parents were trying to show me how much they loved me by taking a strict stand on many issues. They said no to so many things that most of my friends' parents said yes to. Fast forward to parenting our own children. I wanted very badly not to repeat the past, but there were some habits embedded in the words I chose, the way I talked, and my gut reactions that made it hard. I was pre-wired to say no, and so when our children would ask for certain freedoms, we often began with no, and then sometimes, but not always, crawled towards yes. Let's just say it wasn't our first instinct, especially not mine. As a parent, I considered myself an evolved version of my parents, allowing our children to go to sleepovers, movies, dances, and parties. We also did not remember the Sabbath to keep it holy in the way I had been taught. We actually considered having fun on a Sunday to be the best way to keep the Sabbath set apart from the grueling work week. But still, 
there were plenty of situations where I started with yes and doing it brought about the kind of relational stretching pain that I talk about in these essays. I had to let go of so much of how I'd been raised and sometimes it hurt, like pulling a muscle. And I also found myself worrying that our children might get hurt while enjoying the freedom we afforded them. Well, now we're grandparents and don't have those specific kinds of concerns. As a grandmother to 10, I have relaxed into yes in a big way. And the flexibility is amazing. I am having lots of fun enjoying my grands with all that comes with the positivity a grandparent can give. It's not as much of a painful stretch anymore, but one that feels good and productive. Now, I'm not talking about doling out candy to my grands whenever they ask for it. I'm talking about being open and accepting of who they are and the things they would like to try in the process of figuring that out. Their creative thoughts, their hopes, their dreams, and also their individual personalities are something I am welcoming with outstretched arms. I would have to say the best part of grandparenting is learning who these growing grands are and saying a big, fat yes to all of it. Next time on the Grand Life Podcast. From my family of origin, guns were associated with people who were in trouble or because they lived that kind of lifestyle. Why do you need a gun? Like, because guns are for these kind of people. Remember, I kept saying, but you're putting everybody in the house at risk. Like, maybe you have some personal reasons for having a weapon, but you live with two other people. The main thing was I was concerned for my own safety. But it just had me thinking that at the same time, well, my life could be in danger, but as well as my family. So I'd rather have protection if need be than not have it. That's next time on the Grand Life Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and rate and review the episodes that speak to you in a significant way. Whatever podcatcher app you are using is likely to have a way to rate us with stars or comment in a review. We'd appreciate it. I'm Emily Morgan. And I'm Mike Morgan. And thanks for joining us in Living the Grand Life. 